You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Colin Wright. And Colin has a PhD in evolutionary biology, and he is currently a postdoc uh, in evolutionary biology, and he's studying the social behavior of ant, wasp, and spider societies. And Colin also has a keen interest in biological sex and issues related to biological sex and trans activism. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So tell me what your, what your PhD was exactly on. What was your work? What was your work on for your PhD, and what are you working on right now? Yeah. So during my time in, for my PhD, we basically oh, I pursued sort of two dissertations side by side. That's kind of what my advisor had us do, and and then whatever one kind of had the best data at the end, that's the one we turned into our dissertation. Uh, so the thing that became my dissertation ultimately was relating to uh, social spiders. So uh, I guess. Sort of broadly speaking, I was looking at how um, the personality composition of spider colonies influences things like uh, behavioral plasticity, how information is shared within colonies, uh, and then also how environmental factors like fear shape things like um, collective hunting and, and, and survival of these spider societies in, in the field and also in the lab. And, and now you're working on wasps? Is that correct? Yeah, I, I worked on wasps actually while I was in grad school as well. That was sort of my parallel dissertation uh, that I, I could have written up, I guess, as a, my dissertation, but not everything was published at the time and the story wasn't quite as complete uh, during the time when I was about to graduate. So that's what I study sort of now almost exclusively. I study a little bit of ants, but mostly uh, personality and paper wasp queens and then how how the, the personalities of these queens or the progenitors of their, their colonies can influence the way these uh, their colonies behave much later and how that influences their survival in the field, for instance. Um, so what made, what made you interested? What sparked your interest in this field? Um, why bugs? That's one of the questions uh, somebody on Twitter asked. Um, well, for one, I've just always sort of been super interested in just social behavior. I've always been like the kid that looked at anthills and, you know, I might've done some unsavory things to them with magnifying glasses back in the day. Um, but they've just always sort of fascinated me uh, just for my whole life, pretty much. So the reason that I study bugs specifically, uh, that's not really an accident, although I do find bugs and wasps to be some of my favorite organisms. Um, mainly it's because in graduate school, you want just pick a system that's going to be sort of approachable that you can get data very quickly on. Uh, and there's also just about no regulations on what you can do to many invertebrates. So all insects, right. there's, not, there's not a lot of paperwork, you know, anything that has a, a spine, basically a backbone, you have to file all this paperwork to even be able to work with them. 
but there's basically nothing that you can't do to spiders and wasps and ants. <laughs> and uh, since they also usually have sort of an annual life cycles, that means every year I can kind of rerun these experiments and also do long-term studies. Uh, so it's, they're just very, very useful um, for someone who studies behavioral variation um, and wants to have multiple opportunities to do, uh, to either attempt multiple field studies or to do new studies every year. Uh, what does it mean when you say that, um, for example, a, a particular colony of wasps has a person, the queen has a personality and that influences the colony? What does it mean to have a personality when you are a spider or, or a wasp? Yeah, that's a good question. So it kind of means just maybe what you'd think it sort of intuitively means. So to have a personality is to um, is to behave a certain way consistently. And so when a species uh, is said to have personality variation, it means that there's individuals behave consistently different from other individuals within their colony. So some individuals might be consistently aggressive. Some might be consistently shy. Uh, and this is usually maintained both over time and in different contexts as well. So we co commonly think of personalities, say, in like humans and even our uh, closely domesticated animals like dogs and cats. You know, if you have two dogs or two cats, you know, no two dog behaves the same way. No two cat does. Uh, they behave consistently similar through their whole lives, uh, maybe slight variations. But uh, in general, we can see these consistent behavioral differences between individuals. And so when I study these things in wasps and spiders, I'm measuring the same thing. You basically just measure a certain personality trait, be it how bold they are, how aggressive they are, uh, how much they explore their environment, um, those types of things. And you, you measure them multiple times, and then you can kind of get a sense for how consistently different the personality variation is between individuals within a colony. Mm. I think that um, in in one of your pieces that I was reading, um, you were, you talked about how our attitudes towards animal personality have changed, or maybe I have invented that in my head. But I seem to remember that there there was at one time a a, a feeling, at least in popular science, that to speak of animals having personalities was anthropomorphism. Yeah, that animals are just responding to their environment and some are more successful and others less successful, but that the idea of personality didn't make sense. And I remember people arguing this uh, when I was an undergraduate, even for docs. I remember this being mm -hmm. a talk about how we we ascribe personality to dogs, but that's all just projection. Um, dogs are actually just more or less automata. But um, I, I guess that that is not that is not the generally accepted opinion now. Yeah, so there's there's like a slight difference between anthropomorphizing an animal and thinking that, you know, is that dog or cat or wasp or whatever, are they having the same experience as I am? Uh, so that's sort of the anthropomorphism that we sort of try to avoid. Mm -hmm. Within my field, we, we call it personality just because it's sort of shorthand for consistent inter-individual differences in behavior. Uh, so we often get accused of anthropomorphizing uh, because we say personality, and that's usually something that we reserve for humans just colloquially. But uh, it's, just, it's just sort of shorthand in our field, and it's, it's intuitive, and it basically you know, means sort of the same thing that when we talk about personality in humans. Uh, what kind of used to be the old idea in sort of the behavioral ecology, ethology 
um, sciences was that behavioral variation in in groups or just in nature generally that these these weren't really adaptive traits that differences between individuals uh, is basically just you know just noise it's not important certainly not adaptive in any way uh, if you know there's an optimum way to behave and then you'd expect selection to maybe try to weed out all this variation but only until maybe the last 30 years or so is when we've kind of realized that, well, if, if we'd expect selection to weed out all this variation, why do we see so much variation in personality between individuals? And also within social social groups, especially, we see like the most behavioral variation. Uh, so what the animal personality kind of research paradigm is doing is looking and trying to understand how this variation is maintained, whether or not it's adaptive. Uh, so the origin maintenance of this behavioral variation um, and many colonies and stuff use use this behavioral variation to sort of divide their labor among tasks, and it can be it can be quite adaptive. Whereas before, this was sort of looked at as just as I said, um, just just noise and unimportant uh, unimportant behavioral variation. And does this have implications for understanding human behavior? Yeah, it really does. So there's so. I'm very interested in how collective behavior emerges in humans and how this had shaped societies uh, in the past, but it's practically impossible to study in humans because uh, you would need to look over multiple generations. You would need to have these accurate personality metrics. Um, you would need to, you know, experimentally create groups based on these, their personality composition. So there's, there's just not really a way you can do this effectively. But sort of what you can do and what's been done in certain situations is um, creating groups of individuals, of, of humans that have different personality compositions and then seeing how well they perform at certain tasks like leadership tasks. And um, I know that um, many corporations use these when they're trying to build teams of individuals. They'll have individuals take personality tests and they'll try to create optimum personality compositions of groups that have been shown to um, you know, solve problems in more novel ways and have a different pushback and sort of the behavioral variation that goes in uh, to that. So, um, yeah, so there are a lot of, I guess, potential um, correlates to humans. Uh, but again, as I said, it's very difficult to test those types of deep questions, those evolutionary history questions with it. Right. It does seem to have links with um some of the things that I was talking to David Sloan Wilson about when he was on this podcast. Um, and mm-hmm. he was talking about groups of chickens, uh, chicken personalities. So if you have a chicken farm and you want as many eggs as possible, people used to think what you should do is pick all of the individual chickens who lay the most eggs and you put those together in a cage and then you're going to get or in an enclosure. And then you're going to get the maximum number of eggs. Um, but in fact, those chickens who lay the most eggs are are sociopaths. And, yeah, I um, that. yeah, they they pluck each other's feathers out and kill each other. So if you put a group of those chickens all together, then you get basically Game of Thrones, and um, you end up with only two live chickens. So what you need to do is put chickens together who have um, more amenable and personalities and um that you you want you want to rather than looking to see which chickens lay the most eggs 
you want to just divide your chickens into groups of 10 and look for which group of 10 has the most Mm -hmm. eggs. And keep those, even if some some chickens in that group aren't laying any eggs. Yeah, it's a very good example of of group selection uh, in action. Right. So... um, so you were talking about the 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 collective personalities in the social insects. Um, what does that mean? I mean, I know social insects are sort of one organism, mm-hmm. and it, does that mean that they that they all have the same personality? I'm sorry, this is a very stupid question, but um, oh, no, not at all. That's that's forms the basis of a lot of research questions. That exact question. Uh, so what, what I'm sort of looking at in my research um, with social spiders anyway, and, and they don't have queens, they're not this so-called superorganism that acts as one organism, but in, in many ways they do because they're a cohesive society, they're very inbred, so they're very genetically similar. Um, and so a lot of what I do is try to find out what is, that, I guess, how is the behavioral composition of a group contributing to the sort of emergent collective behavior of the group as a whole. And for a group to have a personality just means that this group behaves consistently different than another collective, um, and that this behavior is persistent over time and in different contexts. So um, for instance, we can have colonies, and if you compose them up of all really aggressive spiders uh, or all really bold spiders, they tend to attack better than groups of all um, all very docile or shy spiders. And then we can actually make colonies composed of these different compositions in every, every way in between. So we can make mixtures. Uh, and what we, we tend to see is that in the laboratory, you get the mixtures of the col- or in sorry, in the laboratory, like the all really bold colonies tend to do well. Um, but in the field, we don't see, like we, these aren't natural compositions that we see in nature. Uh, in nature, it tends to be the mix that matters because you can have different individuals doing different tasks and have different sort of division of labor going for them. Um, so you see, so this is sort of what I'm looking at in my research, just these uh, consistent differences in, in collective behavior. So you said you were interested in how that might apply across to humans. So can you talk me through that? Um, so I guess, yes, just how... Or you're just um, interested in a similar topic in humans. Sorry, I don't mean to put words into your mouth, but... Um, yeah, just talk me through that. Yeah. So, I mean, I started off being interested in just the personality in, in insect societies, for instance. Uh, but I do sort of have a growing interest in studying collective personality in humans to some degree. Um, specifically looking at, um, well, so we know that different, say, political affiliations, they tend to have uh, different types of personality traits. Uh, onto them between, say, Republicans or Democrats, or we can maybe say just say conservatives or uh, or liberals or leftists, for instance. Uh, so there's sort of this self-selection process where individuals are are dividing themselves into groups based on these personality types that they have. Like they 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 differ cons- uh, differ consistently in their behavior between other such groups. But I don't know of any studies that have tried to look at how does this behavioral composition differences between say conservatives and liberals uh, sort of scale up into ways that they behave as a group? And how does this might this manifest itself in, in politics uh, on social media websites and things like that. So I don't have huge sort of like a, a set research 
goal on this, but these are certain, certainly ideas I've been sort of tossing around that I'd like to um, potentially research in the future, maybe as soon as I get a professor job somewhere and I have have some more funding. So conservatives and liberals have different values and there are certain uh, traits that we would associate with them. I guess liberals with more openness, conservatives with more um, uh, with more caution. But is there is there kind of personality correlate? Uh, like, for example, I wouldn't think that liberals were either particularly extroverted or introverted. Do you, can you get a sense of from someone's personality of their political views if you don't know their actual political? Yeah, opinion? yeah. You know, so I I don't know the exact personality traits they have. It was some a paper I read a little while ago. Um, I think some of Jonathan Haidt's research has looked at the personality differences between conservatives and and liberals. And he also has gone even further to look at the moral foundation differences uh, between these groups as well and how and how they differ. Um, so that's another variable I'd like to look at potentially as well as is the moral foundations, because that's a question you can't really look at in in spiders and, and ants and wasps. I can't you can't ask them what their moral foundations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess not. I mean, would it be it wouldn't be possible for them to have different moral foundations, would it? Probably not for insects and things like that, but it'd, it'd be interesting to see if you know if the sort of the great apes might have things that correlate more to our moral foundations. And I'm not sure how exactly you'd test for that, but you could probably get some ideas of fairness and care, harm, that, that type of that type of thing. I don't know if there's any work that's been done at moral foundations and in any non-human animal, but that'd be, um, I think, really interesting research to do. It it seems to me that a lot of the personality the the um, personality tests that people used to rely on have been debunked. Um, certainly, all the ones that rel- rely on self-reporting seem very dodgy to me. Mm-hmm. And I think there has been research done on this where they, if if you give people a, a, a set of personality questions and you frame them in, in such a way that some answers are more kind of flattering or more complex uh, or sound more subtle than others, everybody will pick those. And yeah, they will give all... you the personality trait they wish they had. <laughs> right. And, but ev- yeah. everybody will end up with the same personality analysis. Hmm. And I certainly noticed that it used to be it used to be fashionable to use the Myers-Briggs test. And I have done it four times when I was in the US. Um, and at that time, it was very trendy for employers to use it. Mm-hmm. And I got a different result every time. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, that, I've had that same experience. I think now they use sort of like a 15-point personality test for humans anyway. Uh, I'm not too well-versed in the human personality literature, and it's surprisingly done a lot differently than uh, in the animal personality uh, field. So right. it be interesting to look at those differences. What do you think would be a good way to classify or test human personalities? I mean, do you think introversion versus extroversion, for example, is a is a classification that makes sense? Um, and do you think the, the kind of the, the, the dark and the light triads make sense? Um, I think in a lot of ways, they're pretty, pretty coarse and they might catch some accurate variation in them, but I've always, so you, you mentioned introversion, extroversion. That's, that's always been something I've never been able to really 
assess in myself because they tend to be phrased in ways like, does being in a social group, does that drain you of energy or do you feel energized by social interactions? And you know, for me, it's completely context dependent and also different times. Like sometimes I feel like I want to be social and I'm energized by it. But in other times, if I've had too much of it, then it can feel draining. So I, don't, I never know how to quite answer a lot of those questions in a yes or no fashion. It's always, for me at least, somewhere in between. Um, mm. So, But I think if you're going to do more personality traits, I'd say they have to be more something that you can actually observe in individuals watching them behave in, in real time. You know, maybe in, in animals anyway, we, we measure traits that are very coarse that you can uh, measure pretty well, like we'll do boldness, which is a, the propensity of an indiv individual to engage in sort of a risky type of behavior, or we'll put like a novel object in their environment. And they usually, there's variation in how how neophobic those individuals are. Like some will be afraid of the object, some will walk right up to it, um, or will will stage aggressive encounters with, you know, either a mirror or some sort of dummy and see how, how aggressive they are towards it. Um, you know, things like that, how well they explore their environment. And these are things that are just bare observations that we make. So it's, uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, these insects or animals, you know, self-reporting bias or something. We're just, we're actually measuring the, the behavior itself. Right. And self-reporting just seems to me like an impossible way to measure anything. It's probably capturing something real, but I would imagine that um, actual behavioral data would be would be the best. I, I would think you would be the easiest person to fool, right? Yeah. Uh, isn't isn't yeah. that the Feynman thing? Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Although I'm not sure, it would probably be a lot harder to look at something like moral foundations observationally because you'd have to try to give them these moral dilemmas. I guess you could do it in real time, but it's yes. a little more difficult. Um, I mean, isn't that what Hyde does? He gives them a number of yeah. little moral dilemmas and sees how they watches to see how they answer. Yeah, I remember one where he had like a, an insect that was completely sterilized and they asked people to, you know, if they would eat that, knowing that, you know, it's a completely sterilized insect. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with it. It's not right. going to make you sick. A cockroach, and, I think. Uh, yeah, the cockroach and just seeing the, you know, looking at their disgust or, or something, their traits that they have. Yes, and also if if um, if you're both using completely reliable contraception, you've had a vasectomy, and um, is it okay to have sex with your sister? I think that that yeah, was yeah. one of the other questions. Yeah, definitely. And I would definitely eat the insect, and I don't have a brother, but um, yeah, I, that, that, that idea doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, if, if you go to enough insect uh, conferences like I do, you'll occasionally encounter tables that have nothing but tables full of, you know, insects to eat for, for everyone there. So definitely done a lot of that. So I I want to just move on to your ideas about um, sex, sex the, as in biological sex categorizations rather than the activity. Um, so you have a quite, um, quite a provocative title of the Quillette article that you recently published um, along with, I'm sorry, who is your co-author on that on that article? Uh, it was William Malone and uh, Julia Robertson. Yeah, right. I'll put that in the show notes. But together with your co-authors, the article you recently published in Quillette, which has this very provocative title: "No one is born in the wrong body." I I don't know if you chose that title or if the editors chose the title, but 
are you happy with that title? And if so, what are you trying to say with that? Yeah, it's actually the, the title that we submitted was No Child is Born in the Wrong Body, and then they, they it was changed to No One is Born in the Wrong Body. I still think both of those sentences are true, but in our article, we were specifically making the case for uh, for children and the influence that um, sort of this gender identity ideology is having on confusing children about what gender they are, uh, what sex they are, and given the massive spike in, say, like individual children um, showing up at gender clinics to try to get, you know, be put on puberty blockers, or all of a sudden they're they're saying that they identify as the opposite sex. Um, basically, our, our article was just trying to say, we need to put on the brakes here and kind of look at what's actually happening in society to make these individuals uh, sort of be so confused about uh, their their biological sex. I um, Before we get on to what is happening in society, I just want to ask, when you say no one, aren't there some people who have um, a very strong gender dysphoria from an early age and therefore are in that sense in the wrong body? So I have read some research that suggests that male to female transsexuals, when they looked at in the MRI scanner at certain patterns of brain activity, they found more female typical brain activity that in them than in normal men. Is that is that accurate? And what do you how do you, what do you think of that research? Is that uh, research that you find trustworthy or interesting? Yeah, yeah. Um, am I misinterpreting? Um, so I think what we tried to do in our article is is specifically separate the long and persistent and debilitating gender dysphoria that, you know, persists through adulthood. Uh, that is a very real trait that people can have. Like gender dysphoria is a very real uh, condition that can inflict individuals. Um, we're trying to separate that from um, sort of the social contagion, rapid onset gender dysphoria where, where children are being com- becoming confused uh, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, so in adults, I do think uh, to some degree, yes. I mean, it is it is a fact that people can have this condition where they 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 feel that they are in fact born in the wrong body that they in the inside they feel like a female even though they may be biologically male. I guess I, I'm I shy away from the terminology of actually saying that they are in fact born in the wrong body because um, so an analogy I like try to use is. Um, if we look at other parts of our body that can be masculinized or feminized, say like hands, for instance. So we know that um, the digit ratios and hand morphology is very uh, intimately related to, you know, how much testosterone you have during development and things like that. Uh, And you can have individuals that have hands, you know, a a male can have hands that look, you know, that look very feminine, that are more feminine than most females' hands. And you can have women that have very, very masculine hands that are more masculine than most male hands. Uh, what I would hesitate to say, though, is to, is saying that a male who has a very extremely feminine hand to then say, well, no, you, that is, that's not a male hand. You have a female's hand or, you know, and vice versa. So I would say that any brain that is in the body of a male is by definition a male brain. Uh, there's just a wide spectrum of variation between male and female brains where you can have male brains that are 
uh, extremely feminized that are more feminized than um, most female brains. And you can have females that have more masculinized brains that are more masculine than, than most male brains. And sometimes uh, it makes sense to, to think that, you know, if you're a female with a super masculine brain, that you might identify more with the opposite sex and you might, this might contribute to a sense of dysphoria about uh, how comfortable you are in your own body, for instance. Um, so that's sort of my take on the no one's born of the wrong body. I, I certainly admit that gender dysphoria is a very real thing and that something like, you know, surgery and transitioning your body to, to mitigate um, these symptoms could be a, an acceptable form of, of treatment for these. But I, I, I still would hesitate to say that, you know, you're actually born in the wrong body because this is sort of like a kind of a dualism type thinking where, you know, brains can be boiled down to a certain type of type of male or female essence in a way. Mm. I think you said, I'm going to just quote something that you said on Twitter, the gender identity doctrine relies on the assertion that everyone has something called a gender identity and that this identity can either match or mismatch your sex. However, it doesn't appear that everyone has a gender identity. And you say, um, I don't have a gender identity and I reject the ideology surrounding it. I'm therefore not cis because to use that terminology is to operate from within the pseudoscientific ideology of gender identity I've evaluated and ultimately rejected. Um, what do you mean when you say you don't have a gender identity? Yeah, so it's, that's actually a hard question to, to answer because I, I don't for the life of me even know what people are generally referring to when they, when they say that they identify as, say, a man or a woman or a male or female. And whenever I've tried to ask people to, you know, tell me what these these identities are, they almost always just boil down to sex-related um, sort of conservative stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Um, so I say for myself, like, I don't identify as a man. And just for the record, my, my the, the way I use the word man and woman is an adult human male or female. Um, so I, I consider myself a man because I'm an adult human male. I don't identify as a man. To me, this is just a fact about my body, about the state of my being. Uh, and I'm going to be this way whether or not I identify this way or not. So um, I don't think it's true that everyone has a gender identity. I know at least... I certainly don't think I do. And I know a lot of people who say that they don't really either. They just acknowledge the fact that they're male or female and that's how they go about their lives. Um, a common retort you have from a lot of activists would be that, well, you do, but since your, you know, your, your identity is in line with your body, then you just don't realize you have it. Um, and to me, this just sounds sort of like a pseudoscientific sort of, uh, you know, it, it sort of boils down to, is there a soul or not to some degree? I think I made an analogy before where it's like saying that, you know, we all have multiple personalities, but you just don't realize you do because both of your personalities happen to be the same. Uh, it's just one of those claims that is completely untestable that I guess may or may not be true, but I just don't see it as a valid scientific hypothesis that we can really 
uh, move anywhere with. Mm. So they're really talking about how when people are talking about gender, they're talking about how much you conform to the things that are more prevalent in your sex. For example, your flat, <laughs> or what I have seen of it when, when I spoke to you on Skype, is the most, I, I mean, I, I know they have, but it looks like no woman has ever set foot in that space. Um, <laughs> it makes it sound like it's a dump now. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean in that sense. No woman has ever set in, foot in there to tidy up. Um, you haven't had to clean up because you've had no visitors. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just the most extraordinarily kind of bachelor paddy, masculine <laughs> um decor um, that I've seen. Mm. And I mean, there are very striking cross-cultural similarities between men's behavior and women's behavior and preferences um, that I have certainly noted. And I'm much more, I'm much more kind of red-pilled on this topic than I am on race, because I have lived in so many different places. And I have noticed some some cultural differences. But basically, I haven't noticed any real change in range of personalities, intelligence, mm -hmm. or or anything or anything else um, from between people of of different quote unquote races or different nationalities or ethnicities. But I certainly have everywhere I have lived and every everything I've experienced, I have noted a really really high correlation between certain behaviors and personalities and men and certain behaviors and personalities and women with a lot of overlap, of course. So surely that also helps to form a sense of gender identity. So when I say that I'm a very girly person, for example, I mean that I enjoy reading Isabel Allende and um, I cry at sad films and um and you know i have i i have a lot of pastel colors in this place um mm -hmm. it's like the opposite of your flat um mm -hmm. and you know i want to wear pretty lipstick and things like that i feel i feel there's this i feel i have a i feel that that's a gender identity is that not a gender identity or is that just a a stereotype um, is that just like saying my taste in this is similar to other people's? Um, yeah. Lots of people like, I don't know, cheese, toasted cheese sandwiches. And I also like toasted cheese sandwiches. Yeah. So I, I definitely acknowledge that there are some pretty striking sex differences. Um, and that, you know, what we consider stereotypically masculine and feminine behavior are you know, there's, there's stereotypes for a reason, and many stereotypes are often, as Lee Jessam has shown, are, are quite accurate sometimes. Um, and so, but I, I guess where I sort of push back a little bit is the fact that be, just because these sort of average differences exist, there's these constellations of behavior, correlated behaviors that are, you know, more associated with masculinity and then some are more associated with femininity. Um I, I don't see how this is how this factors into one's identity. So I, I can sort of place myself on some sort of spectrum if I were to like try, because I think I have very some masculine features, both in my the things that I enjoy doing and um, 
my preferences and my behavior. I certainly don't deny that I have that. But for me, this is this is just you know, this is just who I am, basically at at a, at a fundamental level. Um, so whenever I hear someone say that they identify uh, with something, it seems to suggest there's maybe a set of traits or behaviors that that you really can't do without forfeiting some type of a label. Uh, so what is a man? What is a woman? Is there anything you know that a man can do that a woman can't? And 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 still hold on to the label and vice versa. Um, that's that's sort of kind of where I come down to it. So I, I know that there's real behavioral differences, um, but I would just say that even though I could acknowledge that I'm I'm more I'm stereotypically masculine in many ways, this isn't something I identify with. This is just this is just who I am at a fundamental level. Um, so th- there's been. So we have this ever sort of expanding list of of non-binary gender identities. In, in my view, these they're simply just creating new names for certain constellation of correlated personality traits and preferences. Uh, so we keep seeing more and more new gender labels being being created. But um, and I, I guess what I would boil them down to is, you know, we actually have 7.7 billion gender identities, and they correspond to every unique individual who's as a unique personality. Uh, that's kind of my my conception of, of how we should be looking at at identity. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder how um I wonder how much this how much overlap this is with this has with sexuality. So when I'm when I'm thinking about um when we're thinking of ourselves as as sexed beings when I most think of myself in that context, I mean, apart from when when actual physical sensations are happening to me, like I'm menstruating or something, I would say that it's, we think of ourselves in that way in sexual situations. And I don't mean just having sex, but also wanting to be attractive to people or flirting or kind of dressing up or trying to look nice, quote unquote, um, that really the kind of masculine or feminine feeling um, is something that we, that, that emerges most strongly in a, in a sexual context. So for example, when I'm writing a paper, when I'm writing an article, I'm not feeling like I'm writing this article as a woman. I don't feel there's anything particularly feminine about the way I'm writing. Mm-hmm. My, there's nothing particularly feminine about my behavior when I'm writing. I procrastinate a lot and have arguments with people on Twitter. There's nothing especially feminine about that. It's a self-destructive, but it's not, it's not womanly in some profound way. And I don't feel like there's anything particularly feminine about how I frame a sentence if I were at a board meeting or something, I don't feel like there's something feminine about any of my ideas or contributions. And I remember when I was an academic, people complained about this. They said, I never feel, uh, one of my colleagues said to me, I never feel like a woman, which I thought was a really interesting comment. She said, here, I'm just an android. I'm like, I'm a very nice Android. People want to have me on their committee <laughs> or have me teach their 
seminar or give a paper at their conference. Um, but I feel completely like an android. I don't feel like a woman. And I can totally relate to that. I mean, I think that the feeling like a woman or like a man is basically for sexual purposes. Uh, I can't imagine it completely divorced from anything to do with sex. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think that's a, that's something that I just, I guess, don't feel at all. Like I've never paused and thought to myself, wow, I feel like a man right now. Like, I, I just don't, I don't even know what that means besides, you know, boiling it down to, oh, I'm conforming to these certain masculine stereotypes that we have. Um, I tend to just feel that this is, this is what I want to be doing right now. And that's, that's sort of the end of it <laughs> for me anyway. Uh, I understand maybe that's not everyone's experience. I guess that's the basis of my tweet where I say that I, you know, not everyone has this, this gender identity and where I also reject the label as being, as being cis, because I, f I feel fundamentally that the terms, you know, if, if I identify as cis, well, what does that even mean for me? That does that just mean that I, I identify with the stereotypes of my sex? Well, in some ways I do, but in some ways I don't. I have feminine traits uh, as well that that I've embraced. Um, so I, I don't even know what it, what it would mean to say that I identify as a man or if I'm, I'm cis or, or any mm. of the above. Mm. I mean, I dance tango um, and I used to be a professional um, tango dancer and teacher. And that is an extremely sexually dimorphic dance. And I think that one of the attractions of the dance is that it gives people this feeling of inhabiting the kind of sexed body, um, not even necessarily sexual, but just this, the, this, the, this kind of sensation. Um, but I, th I mean, a lot of that is literally a, a role-playing thing that you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, men sit one side of the room, women sit the other side. And men wear flat shoes, women wear heels. Men have certain movements they make, women have, other, have different movements. There are specific, like, uh, decorations, as we call them, so little, little um, movements of the feet, which are sort of much more likely that it's much more likely that women will do them. And that whole, that's when I have that kind of sexed sensation, I guess, which is in this kind of role play situation. And when I was uh, leading tango, I had, when I was leading tango, I had this very strong feeling of kind of this fun sensation of temporarily borrowed masculinity that the the feeling first of all the feeling that you hold the woman with your uh, holding her right hand with your left it just feels very masculine to lift your left arm and hold the right hand um i mean this also shows how arbitrary it is because there's nothing particularly masculine about your left hand versus your right hand right mm -hmm. um but in tango men always hold with the left hand women hold with the right and just 
putting, holding her hand with my left hand and having this woman like drape herself over me immediately shut her eyes. And I'm wearing flat shoes, she's wearing heels and I have to lead and initiate movements and do floor craft and kind of keep her safe from being bumped. I had this really strong feeling of I feel like a man. And I kept making this Freudian slip where I was saying, well, I was dancing and the other men were doing X and Y. And this other guy was on the floor. And, um, you know, why, why, did, why did I keep calling them the other men without even noticing? It was, um, it was an interesting experience. I don't, I don't know what you make of that. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how to make of it other than maybe, you know, because you you identify yourself as being, you know, stereotypically feminine in many ways, you know, the opposite of my bachelor pad, for instance. And so that could have just been, you know, since there is that disparity that you 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 kind of squarely put yourself sort of on one side of the spectrum comfortably um, to, to, to take a role that's commonly performed by someone on the other side of that spectrum, I guess, uh, is to is to feel that that disparity even more. But I'm sure there could be some, you know, more masculine women out there who would maybe more naturally feel that, you know, they want to take on the quote unquote man's role in, in the tango. And that might feel, you know, perfectly normal to them. And you can have men who might want to take on the, you know, quote unquote female role, the feminine role. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, of, of course. I mean, there are some women who prefer to lead and there are some men who prefer to follow. And also quite a few people have said to me that they don't feel it's, they don't understand why I think of these things as sexed. They just think mm-hmm. it's just like one is a triangle, the other is a square. Uh, so that's, that's sort of how I guess see it. Is they're just sort of different, especially when something is like dancing might be, I guess it would depend on the dance that there, there could be more like stereotypically you know, masculine or, you know, forceful moves or something that I'm, you know, that would be more um, stereotypically masculine, I guess, rather than arbitrary types of mm, dance. Mm. Um, I'm a terrible dancer. So I, this is not a, something that I could, <laughs> I can really relate to. So I, I guess what I'm getting at, what I'm scrambling around here and trying to think of how to express is um, that historically and traditionally, um, there has been this kind of slippage between sex and sexuality. So, for example, um, uh, Radcliffe Hall. In 1928, when Radcliffe Hall wrote The Well of Loneliness, um, she, uh, so she thought of herself as, a, she was a lesbian, and she thought of herself as an invert, and she took a man's name, she called herself John, and the the protagonist of her novel, she called the protagonist Stephen, who is also an an English woman from an upper upper class family suffering from or suffering from experiencing sexual inversion, which is what homosexuality used to be called. And all the early theories about homosexuality in women had to do with excess masculinity. Now, I think that we have let go of that kind of stereotype of that idea that if you're attracted to people of your own sex and you must be effeminate if you're a man or very masculine if you're a woman. Um, but we seem to replace it with a, a different stereotype, which is that if you're a very masculine woman who's attracted to women of your own sex, 
you must actually be trans. Yeah, that's that's something that I've definitely seen a lot of, and we kind of discussed that in the recent Quillette article as well. I, I do see it as sort of a new type of, I guess, gay conversion therapy. <laughs> I know it might be skewed for saying that, but, you know, in the past, we'd have individuals in society looked down upon being gay, and so they tried to make their minds uh, align with their their bodies you know they if you're a male who's attracted to males they tried to give you therapy to bring your mind into you know wanting to be with women Mm. but now we sort of we sort of reverse that and now if you're a stereotypically masculine female for instance now which which would normally be correlated with being a homosexual you know adult um so like you know stereotypically more uh, masculine tomboyish behavior they're they're statistically more likely to grow up to be homosexuals cross-sex stereotypical behaviors correlated with um, homosexuality in adults and now this is sort of being sort of trans instead of you know just letting people generally develop into their their natural their natural sexuality so now we're sort of instead of changing their minds to be in alignment with their body, now we're going just doing the opposite and saying, now we can bring your bodies in alignment with your mind. And for some reason, that scene is being more progressive than the other way, even though it's way more, you know, physically invasive that requires surgeries and hormones. Whereas, you know, traditional gay conversion therapy, as bad as it is, is merely, you know, it's, it's, abusive therapy by by no stretch of the imagination it, it is abusive I, I believe but I don't see how that's I, I see I've, I've seen but it seems like that's more benign than what is now considered a progressive way to do the same thing right because it doesn't actually work also I mean it's I, I, I guess it's a traumatic experience to go through but it doesn't mm-hmm. do anything um, exactly. Yeah, Darren Brown, who is one of my uh, heroes, um, the because of his mostly because of his book on stoicism, which I absolutely love, um, Happy, which I will link to in the show notes. But he, uh, so he's the same age as me, and he actually voluntarily uh, underwent gay conversion therapy as a young adult because he really didn't want to be gay. Um, and it wasn't, he didn't have a tremendously abuse, abusive experience. And he did go into this completely consensually. But his great disappointment was that it didn't work. And he kept looking to see if he could find anybody for whom it had worked. Uh, and eventually he gave up because he realized that it hadn't worked for any for anyone. Yeah. Um, I bet it's just going gonna, gonna to scare people into, you know, announcing that they're cured, but it's not actually doing oh, right. They've essentially just gone into hiding at that point. Um, right. <laughs> they're still struggling with their urges. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, um, I mean, I have, I have known a number of very, very kind of butch lesbian women um, who, I have a friend, for example, who I, uh, she was invited to a wedding and they asked, they wanted her to wear a dress. And she said, I just feel really wrong wearing a dress. I feel like a man in drag when I put a dress on, which was a really interesting thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and but um but since she grew up in my gener in with my cohort it didn't occur to her to um uh, to depict this as being trans it was just being a very butch lesbian type uh full stop and i did notice today that um patrick lockwood was talking about this that he said that he feels that um he thinks i i don't agree with him i don't agree with him but this is an interesting kind of theory he also thinks that the prevalence of drag culture is about um that in, it's not accepting of very very feminine men because it's suggesting that once you get to a certain degree of feminism you need to actually put on a dress use a female pronoun and um and call yourself by a woman's name so um but you should be able to be just as feminine but still being still kind of not not even um not even doing the kind of drag act you shouldn't need the the persona i think that was his argument you shouldn't need the the woman persona in order to just express your your more stereotypically feminine characteristics but still be completely a man yeah exactly that's sort of what we call for in our article is just expanding our notions of what it means to be a male or female behaviorally rather than keeping those blue and pink boxes up and insisting that if you're a female who is very masculine that oh now you're in the blue box and if you're a male who's feminine now you're in the pink box and you need to change your pronouns now for some individuals i think you know as i said before uh, i think there's a difference between just being an extremely feminine male who might have some degree of you know dysphoria just by recognizing their position on the behavioral spectrum in relation to their peers who are sharing their sex and there's also i think that's different than being having actual uh long-term persistent debilitating gender dysphoria which uh, you know, is a, is a psychological condition that is, uh, I think, goes above and beyond just sort of um, looking at your degree of femininity in relation to your to your sex. Right. So that's really about unhappiness with a physical body, a very profound unhappiness with a physical body, right? Mm -hmm. Or is yeah. is there more to dysphoria than that? I think it's more accurate to call it sort of body dysmorphia at that point. Um but that's, I think, a big component of sort of what I would consider, uh, what I would separate an individual who's legitimately trans for someone who's, you know, might experience sort of some sort of dysphoria because of their, their the, how they recognize where they are on the spectrum of masculinity or femininity in relation to their sex. So you said at one point that um, you talked about society, that uh, society has, it why why has this suddenly become uh so much more common why has people why are so many people seemingly now identifying as trans and even at, at very young ages um what is going on there societally that's what i'm trying to figure out <laughs> there's there's an obsession i see with with identity and uh, and that somehow identity is more real than reality itself. So in my, my first quote article, it, I have sort of identified this taking place among a bunch of friends who were, you know, some of them were graduate students in anthropology and 
they were using phraseology with respect to sex and how it's a spectrum and you know there's there's no clear line dividing males and females and because there's no clear line or because intersex individuals exist therefore male and female are just completely social constructs and that you know if you want to know what sex someone is well you can just ask them because they're better at determining that than you know than than their genitals are um I, I can't for the life of me know how that caught on so much. Um, yeah, that's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out <laughs> is why, why we seem to just have forgotten knowledge that we all seem to know was true yesterday. All of a sudden we just seem to have this amnesia with respect to these, these hard facts that, um, that are just, I guess, physical states of, of, of the universe, of our, of our bodies. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about intersex issues too much because I had a, um, a quite long podcast interview with Claire um, Graham, which I'll link to in the show notes. Mm. Uh, and we talked a lot about um, how, how common intersex conditions are, also what it means to be intersex, how this affects the debate and, and why that doesn't invalidate the idea that there are two sexes. Um, we don't have any actual hermaphrodite individuals. I don't know if you've read The Left Hand of Darkness, my no, uh, one no. of my favorite novels, which I'm completely obsessed with. Have you read it? I have not. You, sh- you need to read that, Colin. <laughs> because, the Left uh, Hand of Darkness? The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. Uh, it's a novel about a planet inhabited by a a, uh, a species of um, a sentient species, basically uh, very much like humans, except that they are estrus-dependent hermaphrodites. What, and and we that planet is called Gethin, and we certainly don't live on Gethin. <laughs> Definitely not. How is it? How is this kind of a trans activist? orthodoxy affecting um, academia and affecting evolutionary biology and science. Yeah. So it's going to depend on the specific field, I guess. Um, I think the main move that's being done is just this obfuscation between gender identity and biological sex itself. Um, This is what I see is the main thing that's being the, the, I guess the main mistake that is constantly being um, being done. So it's, it's hard to say, I guess, what the effects are going to be, but um, anytime you're just totally ignoring physical reality in favor of some politically driven, ideologically driven motive, um, it's just going to end up confusing people. And I think some of the, the impacts we're seeing isn't so much on the science itself, I think they're just wrong on the science when they say that sex is a spectrum and things like that. So it's the effect on science is just to not be accurate with respect to reality. But this has spin-off behaviors. You get enough, you know, um, nature articles that are going to talk about sex being a spectrum, and this is how you get individual children who are becoming confused about, you know, what sex they are and if their behavior is indicator of their sex. Um, and it's just causing so much confusion just at, at those levels. Um, it's spinning off into, you know, having trans individuals wanting to play, you know, in um, 
against females in sports. You have males who simply identify uh, as the opposite sex, thinking that they should be able to compete against female athletes because of just how they identify, because they read somewhere that, you know, sex is a spectrum and there's no fundamental difference between males and females. So as long as I say I'm a female, then I should be able to, I should be able to compete against females since there's no single trait that you can point to that's, you know, that all females have that all males don't have uh, is the language they usually tend to use. So, yeah, so it's, I think it's just scientifically wrong, but then this has, you know, spinoffs in society um, impacting the rights of, of mainly females. I think females are the main victims here because they have, you know, fought long and hard to have certain spaces that are segregated for them, not just sports, but, you know, different prisons and, you know, shelters and things like that, uh, that are, I guess, no longer segregated by sex anymore. And that's a real concern for me and them too. What is your definition of, of sex, Colin? Yeah, so basically at a fundamental level, it's going to come down to the type of reproductive anatomy that you've, that you've developed. Um, that's at a fundamental level how we distinguish one sex from the other. Um, there are many other traits that are correlated with sex, say certain types of chromosomes that you have and you know your sex can determine how much testosterone you have going through your body it's going to determine or influence how tall you are and muscular um, but a lot of these things are basically just um, things that sex influences and aren't definitional uh, aren't the definition of sex in general uh, so there's, there's a few levels i guess you can look at sex so if you kind of zoom out, you can look at sex as just basically a mode of reproduction. And this is a, this is a property of a species as a whole. We'll say that, you know, humans are a sexually reproducing species. And then you can zoom in a little bit more and you can look at sex as a property of individuals. So there's two forms that are involved and necessary for sexual reproduction to take place. And then you zoom in a little bit more and then you get to the fact that, well, sex is referring to one of two bodily phenotypes that, you know, either eventually will, uh, potentially could actually do or may previously had uh, produced or, or will produce a certain type of, of gamete being either sperm or, or ova. Um, but ultimately it's going to, you know, as I said, boil down to the reproductive anatomy that you've developed that will eventually or, you know, even if it doesn't end up functioning that way, that's that's evolved to produce those types of uh, those types of gametes. So fundamentally, that's sort of where I see biological sex. That's that's what we're referring to when we talk about biological sex. And that's not to say that every individual can be assigned a sex. So there's a conflation between statements like there are only two sexes, and then the statement everyone neatly fits into one of two sexes. So there are intersex individuals that are kind of difficult to place uh, into one sex or the other, but it's important to realize that intersex isn't, isn't a third sex. It's just sort of um, sex ambiguity or there's a mismatch between, you know, there's your sex phenotype and the genotype that you have, your internal, uh, internal anatomy. Yeah, I guess that's that's my overview of what I refer to as biological sex. 
And I wanted to ask you also what you make of the non-binary phenomenon. So given that you you talked about how you don't you don't feel like you have a gender identity. Mm-hmm. And it does seem that that a quite large number of people feel that way. And some of those people have now begun to describe themselves as non-binary. I guess I should ask someone who describes himself as him, him, her, them, self as non-binary, whether this fits the definition. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the, the quotations that's often cited by trans activists is from Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, where she says, woman is not born but made. And interestingly, they take that as a as a kind of positive thing, as if both de Beauvoir is championing this. But actually de Beauvoir's idea is that you are de, de Beauvoir's idea in the second sex is also that there is no there's no gender identity there for her there are certain biological experiences um, that women go through and then there's also societal expectations and societal oppression mostly uh, that is what she is describing um, although not entirely also some unearned advantages but there's there's just the two things there's the biology the actual biological experiences like giving birth, let's say, or having breast cancer or lactating or something. And on the other hand, there are the societal roles that you are more or less influenced, brainwashed or coerced into. It's the way in which the observation of biology leads people to pigeonhole you and force you to behave in certain ways or place certain expectations of behavioral expectations upon you, that is the making of woman. That is why woman isn't born but made uh, in de Beauvoir's book. And I wonder what de Beauvoir would have made of the current trans activism and the way in which that that quotation is being used in a in a kind of celebratory way, as if this making of a gender identity is something to be devoutly wished for. And if you don't, if you don't have a strong sense of gender identity, then even that becomes a gender identity. It's your non-binary gender identity. Yeah. So I, I actually really like that type of definition that that social constructivist definition of of gender to some degree so like the societal roles norms and expectations that the society inflicts upon individuals that based upon their perceived sex i think that's actually like an extremely powerful method of of analyzing social interactions to me i think this explains a lot about why say like non-passing trans women uh receive so much hate by people, why they get bullied so much. Uh, It's not because they're trans per se, but it's because society sees males that are gender non-conforming, and then society wishes to, you know, and this is done by small individual interactions, but the the societal norms discriminate against that, and they'll be called names and, you know, by by many individuals. Um, And the same thing when you see an extremely, say, butch female who's not corresponding to who's or who's exhibiting gender atypical behavior 
they're usually called names too because you know they're not conforming to the expectations that people usually have with respect to that that sex. Now I think that goes a little too far sometimes in this line of thinking to say that uh, there are no sex differences and that the stereotypes are only created because they're enforced by society. I think you do need to take into account that real sex differences do exist and that those stereotypes are true to some degree in terms of average differences, but it, it, nobody should be taken uh, so you shouldn't treat individuals as representative of their entire groups because there's, as we've mentioned, the overlapping distributions and behavior and in between individuals. Uh, so the, the non-binary identities, though, I see that as a different type of identity. That's sort of in the more like Tumblr type identities where people right. are just identifying <laughs> as, as like, there's no socially enforced non-binary identity. But I guess what a non-binary person is saying is that they do not identify with the stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Um, and that's something that I sort of relate to in a big way. Like I don't identify, I might, I might conform to many of them, but uh, you know, there's ways that I behave that are feminine and ways that are masculine. And I think what we all need to just accept is that no one is a perfect stereotype. Well, maybe somebody is, but like no one, no one is a, a real perfect stereotype of their sex. So in a way we're all non-binary in terms of our behaviors. Like sex might be binary in the sense that there's males and females and then intersex aren't a third sex. So there's, you know, there's two sexes, but individual expression, how we behave, degrees of masculinity and femininity that can legitimately be described as sort of a spectrum. It might be bimodal. So it's going to, cluster on both sides but there's you know you can you can exist in the middle there somewhere uh and most people do exist somewhere in the middle because no one is just all or nothing that's not how that's not how the, the distribution is broke down to say that society is binary is to say that all all males are behaving the same way and females are behaving you know the same but but, but different from males so in a way, I am non-binary, but I think we're all non-binary. The solution to this problem isn't to just keep inventing more roles uh, that are different, you know, constellations of correlated behaviors um, where you have like demi-boy and all these different things. Like that's not the solution to the problem. The solution I view is to realize that, you know, there is no uh, binary. There is no triplet. There's not a hundred genders. Gender itself just makes no sense we need to get rid of we need, we need to stop making more categories and realize that none of these individual categories none of these boxes can actually capture the behavioral diversity of of humanity we're all going to be completely unique you're not going to have two individuals that are going to behave the same way who have all the same preferences so that's why you have i don't know if you've seen the the hashtag like gender free it's what a lot of gender critical feminists are now kind of calling themselves and that's because they 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 don't want more boxes they never wanted boxes to begin with they reject all of the boxes and they want to just be individuals who are you know who can behave any way that they want to without being pigeonholed into any specific role so that's that's sort of my take on on non-binary it would be nice if this kind of um 
if we could abandon these pigeonholes to the extent also that non-passing trans people would be more accepted. Because I, I have noticed there's just an enormous amount of hate, especially towards um, trans women. And I think partly because women do seem to pass better, generally. And I think uh, Stephen Stewart Williams, when I was talking to him, um, had some ideas about um, why that might be. And I think uh, it's mostly that we do, we find feminine features attractive on both men and women. We're more accepting of feminized facial features on a man than we are of masculine on a woman. This is the, uh, this is my extrapolation from what I was talking to Steve Stewart Williams about. But it's, um, the, the, just the sort of depth of hatred is really surprising to me. So the person is tall and broad shouldered and looks masculine despite wearing a dress. Why does that in itself, um, make people so angry? Because it really does. Um, and I do understand being angry at crazy trans activists who are making absurd demands and at people like Jessica Yaniff, who are basically abusers trying to get into women's uh, and young girls' spaces so that they can perv on them. Um, and I also understand people not wanting to to be forced to spout sort of nonsense, things that are scientific nonsense. But if if somebody wants to change... If if consenting adult wants to change their body, um, why why does that anger and upset people so much? Yeah, I'm not sure why that would anger people, but I, I do think that social constructivist definition is what's playing the role in ha directing more hate towards trans women than trans men, and that's just because testosterone, the influence of that on development, are more non-reversible. So if you're if you're a male and you've gone through puberty, um, you can take cross-sex hormones, and it's you know it's going to change your distribution of fat on your body. You're going to lose some muscle, but you're not going to change many of the features that you've you've gained through um, the androgen androgenizing effects of testosterone on your body. Whereas females who transition to male, or who you know who to take cross-sex hormones. Uh, they, their body does go through these developmental features. They're, they essentially experience uh, sort of a male puberty on their body, like their bone structure is going to change, uh, their voice is going to change. It is more, it's easier for a trans man to actually pass as male than it is for a trans woman to pass as female. And so insofar as, you know, individuals can identify when there's a male wearing a dress, um, that's that gender non-conforming behavior. They're able to identify them as a gender non-conforming male and, you know, try to whip them back into shape with, with shame. Whereas if they don't even know that this, this trans man is a female because they're more likely to pass, then you just, you just, they just don't get that, that same hate because they're not identified as a gender non-conforming female anymore. They're just seen as male. Uh, this is also why people like Blair White, who's you know, who's, who's well transitioned, I guess, where mm. you know, if you were to run into Blair White naturally, you wouldn't be able to know. You would, I would never guess that Blair White was born male, right? Or is it is a male, and so she likely doesn't receive sort of the same uh, 
the same hate, I guess, that a, that a, a non-passing trans woman would receive. Um, yeah, that's sort of my take on on why. And I think there, there's also uh, not not just I'm not sure how certain I am on this, but I think there is probably more policing of behavior among males than potentially among females. At least aggressive policing, um, physical. Uh, between male male that the intersexual competition is more physical and violent among mm. males so when they identify a male who's non-conforming you know that's an opportunity to to put another male down and you know rise in the hierarchy or something um, it does seem to me that there's a there's a kind of traditional um, definition of of masculinity which is about things that you don't do if you're a man if you're a man, you don't mm-hmm. go to rom-coms and you don't cry and you don't wear dresses. Whereas as a woman, you can not cry and wear trousers and go and watch monster truck rallies. Um, exactly. I'm thinking of, you know, when I was when I was in grade school growing up, I mean, it was, it was relentless. I mean, the boys and how much they policed behavior and masculinity in their male friends. And if you behave feminine in any way, like, you know, this wasn't directed at me so much, but I saw it directed at a lot of a lot of kids who, you know, if they'd cry or if they, you know, were scared or did something, you know, it was it was pretty relentless the the masculine policing that other boys do. Um, and I think there's generally a, a wider acceptance of behaviors among among females. I mean, I'm sure there's still going to be bullying and policing going on for femininity, um, but I, I get the sense that it's a little more extreme in males. But I could be wrong. Um, I think I think probably I don't know. I think I would need to interview some Zoomers about this um, mm-hmm. because we were we were heavily policed. But I went to a very old fashioned boarding school, even for the time, old fashioned, and um, and you know that was in the early eighties. So I I do think things have changed a lot. I remember being very being queer, which at that time was a really ugly word was kind of like the the n-word it was really a word that you didn't say out loud and if somebody said it to you you were incredibly shocked i remember that kind of involuntary physical frisson of shock from hearing that word and um you know 30 years later i was teaching a senior seminar in the queer studies department and it yeah, has I, become I yeah it's become so accepted it's neither politically correct term yeah. um I taught a seminar on representing homosexuality. And uh, so I remember that being an, an absolute taboo. And we didn't, um, uh, girls didn't touch each other and weren't physically affectionate because if you were, you would be labeled a queer. And I remember one girl was plaiting, doing a French plaits on another girl's hair. And um, people just mercifully, mercilessly teased her for being a lesbian for weeks afterwards, um, and I'm I'm sure that that probably doesn't happen anymore. Also, I remember all the shock about Martina Navratilova being a lesbian. That was oh, horrifying. <laughs> that this tennis icon was a was a lesbian, and also I. I I was told that I was a lesbian because I didn't shave my legs. 
And the reason I didn't shave my legs was because all the other girls wanted me to shave my legs. So I refused. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember actually um, declare loudly declaring that I was never, ever going to wear makeup or jewelry or shave my legs because I felt that this was, I really, I also thought, I also was not interested in um, boys. I wasn't interested in sex at all. I didn't like pop music. And I was very scornful of all of these stereotypically feminine things. I thought they were completely petty, trivial, and stupid. And I was a very perverse um, and stubborn young person. So the expectation that I should have hairless legs made me take a kind of vow never to shave them. Of course, now I have my legs waxed. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But I wonder whether I would have been, whether I, I would have started to wonder if I were trans, if I had been having that experience growing up today in this climate. I definitely, I have, I have friends and colleagues who are, who are gay and they've, they've expressed that same the same sentiment that, you know, they were very gender non-conforming children and quite feminine males. And they, they worry that, yeah, they would have been transed instantly <laughs> if they had grown up in today's culture. And that's sort of my fear of what's going on now to a lot of uh, adolescents who would almost certainly grow up to be, you know, gender non-conforming or homosexual adults who are now sort of being put down a pathway to, uh, to, transition and hormones and sterilization and all the things that that can potentially entail. There is the problem, though, that, as you said, if you are, you might be, you might be uh, a man with um, genuine dysphoria. And if you go through the, through male puberty, and you have those androgenizing, the androgenizing effects of male puberty are irreversible. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the big issue is that, Yes, it's it's hard to reverse it, it will, to to the you know the small percentage of individuals that will persist in their dysphoria, but by all measures right now, if you measure gender dysphoria in children, um, I think it's it's now eighty five percent of them will grow up just to be homosexual adults, and only fifteen percent will persist in their dysphoria up into adulthood. So this could be just you know, do we need just better metrics on how to assess which individuals are going to persist and which ones are going to desist? And how much bycatch, how many how many gay children are we going to be, you know, unnecessarily transing in order to make transitioning easier for the small fraction of individuals who will, who will persist? Um, I don't know if there's a perfect answer to it, um, I, I lean towards not having children be putting on blockers when they're that young, just because I, I just don't see that any bycatch is really going to be that acceptable. I don't know how any, any homosexual kid who's, you know, going to be put down that path. And it's unfortunate for the individuals who are going to be, you know, who are going to persist, but it's, it's just, it's just a tangly subject it's i don't think we can have perfection in any of these but we need to cause as less least harm as possible um yeah it's a it's a complex issue for sure mm. 
But then there's also the case too, where if, if you don't go down through male puberty um, and you don't have the effects of when you go through puberty, you know, your, your, your penis grows and you do need a certain uh, amount of penile tissue to even perform a, a penile inversion and create like a, a, a vagina if you're going to have bottom surgery um, from male to female. So if you if you don't progress at all, it's, you can you, you can sometimes have not enough tissue to even perform that surgery properly, um, and they have to use other tissues. They have to use um, bits of your your colon in some cases to to make your um, you know your you have your bottom surgery your, to make your your vagina. So there's all it's just it's really complicated and it's hard to know where to draw the line and. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what I'm trying to do is forge a path somewhere that's reasonable through this whole <laughs> this whole maze of outrage. So how do you see things developing in the future? Um, what do you have any predictions? Yeah, I think I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I see that. So the a lot of this ideology, I think, has been underground for a long time. It's just been on message boards and places like Tumblr. Um and it's only in the last several years that it's really been pouring over into society as a whole. But these are fringe views. And so whenever society gets a glimpse and gets a whiff of a lot of this, there there tends to be pretty harsh pushback to these ideas. And I think, you know, if we have more trans women who are going to be competing against females, and if you have more trans women who are, or, you know, someone just identifying their way into a female prison, the more that these things are going to be brought to the public, the more backlash there's going to be. Um, and I just think that it's going to get worse in the sense that more, more problems are going to occur. Like there's going to be more um, trans women in sports, for instance, it's going to be ruining some of these events um, before a pushback, a major pushback occurs. And one of the biggest fears I have is that the pushback is going to be too too strong in a sense. And it's it's going to really just blow back in the other direction. And it's going to cause a lot more, more pain and suffering and contribute to a lot more transphobia that I think, uh, well, I don't think any transphobia is, is good to have, but it's, I think it's going to contribute to, to more of that. Um, I'm 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 already seeing a lot of that people um, people talking about how delusional this is etc and sick and um, things like that and I feel that it's not um, if you're talking about a consenting adult choosing to make alterations to his or her body I can't see how it's it's relevant I mean you want to make sure that the person is certain this is what they want to do because it's uh, irreversible. Mm-hmm. And um, this is um, the potential irreversibility of it. The bycatch thing is why I don't, why I um, I am wary of puberty blockers, and I certainly don't think we should be doing transition surgery on children at any at any point any time soon. Well, I don't even think we should be removing foreskin. So you know my my stance on this. Um, no unnecessary uh, surgeries. Uh, irreversible surgeries on children, but as an adult, um, I I can't see um, who I can't see how it harms anybody. If you decide that you want to transition, I don't even think it matters what your motivations are. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, well, it matters if it's a case of deceit and self-identification um, and, and you are continuing to have male anatomy and you want to have access to women's prison or something. Of course, that kind of thing matters. Yeah. But if you go and have um, gender transition sex, gen they, they do call it gender reassignment surgery, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Um, if you go and have uh, surgery, then I re or or you take um, hormones and do bodily modifications to the extent that you are making an, an effort to pass, or you're not trying to pass, but it's clear what you're doing and who you are. Mm -hmm. I think that when there's no there's no major deception for criminal purposes involved. I'm I'm struggling ar around this, but um, basically, I can't I can't see who it harms and what the problem is. And this idea that it's some manifestation of sickness that you're doing that, where is the borderline between being mentally ill and being mentally well? Where's, yeah. wh where does that border lie? Is it kind of, we all do, we all make choices and we adapt our lives and we alter our behaviors and we alter our appearance to suit how we want to feel is that is that somehow all of it mentally ill um in in this kind of judgmental sense i'm not expressing this very well but i'm no, very disturbed by this huge backlash against people basically choosing how they want to style their bodies and dress and express themselves i'm definitely all for adults who have thought about it and ultimately decide that's what they want to do for themselves to transition any way that they they'd like to uh i think maybe having some sort of like time delay between when you know between walking into a, a facility to have a you know a surgery should probably be there um and, and between when you walk in and until you actually get the surgery because i do think you know if, if you're just like if I walked into a facility tomorrow and just said, you know, I want all the surgeries done right now, you know, that that would probably raise some red flags to people. It's like, oh, what's going on in his life? Is is there other are there other factors that we might need to look at mental health wise that could be, you know, that this came out of the blue? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that should be just like a, you know, a signal for more deeper inquiry to see what's going on. But if this is something that is persistent after, a, you know, they they've talked to people and this is they they consistently express that this is what they want maybe some sort of time delay some sort of wait period just to make sure they're not just doing something you know on a whim that's they're going to regret later um i'm sure there is a i probably there probably is a wait period right i think there probably is i'm not exactly sure um but i'm just saying like i yeah as long as the adult is in their right mind when they're doing it um, and they're expressing that this is something that they want to do. Yeah, I don't have any problems whatsoever of a consenting adult making any bodily modification that they'd, they'd like to do. Yeah. I remember the wait period used to be, um, I think there was a full two-year wait period. Hmm. And during those two years, you had to dress and live as the opposite sex yeah. and uh, take a... Um, so in the case that I knew of, it's one one of my 
professors at Cambridge did this. And um, so she took a female name, had to wear women's clothing, etc. And um, without having had any alterations to the body yet, you can imagine how difficult that was socially. Yeah, um, it's, it's also kind of kind of backwards to s- insist that you know the, some male, if they're actually trans, they'll have to you know you need to dress and put on female clothing because there's plenty of actual females who don't wear dresses, and w- it's sort of su- subtly suggesting that maybe they're not quite so womanly as <laughs> as you know as they should be. Maybe like why why mm-hmm. should you make them dress? As a female, how does a female supposed to dress? You know that sort of right. Like my daiku, my daiku friend has never, <laughs> who never wears a dress in her life. Um, Seems kind of arbitrary and reduces down to those sexist stereotypes <laughs> that I keep seeing. Yes, yes. I, I also, I mean, I, I, I have a number of lesbian friends who are very masculine and one who regularly passes as male and is quote unquote misgendered a lot. Mm-hmm. And she is always thrilled to be misgendered, um, but also doesn't think of herself as trans. She just finds it kind of exciting and sexy and fun to pass uh-huh. for a man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm frequently mis, I don't know what you'd call it, sexualized as, as homosexual, I guess, sometimes. So that's, that's different than being misgendered, I suppose. Mm, mm. Yeah, I have my, I have my, theories about why that is but I think <laughs> it might be too personal for this podcast <laughs> um, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say oh, I think we covered I think I've covered most of what I'd like to say um, we did it's been a real pleasure Colin as always thank you so much for for having me on my pleasure and oh, um, before we end, I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention, I always mention um, in the podcast, the venture that I'm in, also involved in, which is called Letter, www.letterwiki, and I will link to it in the show notes. And if you go to Letter, Letter is a platform for one-on-one letter exchanges between people. It's a digital platform for public correspondence. And we have both very personal exchanges happening. Um, We have academic and scholarly exchanges on a variety of topics. It's free. Go over there and read some of the conversations you can see in our featured conversations feed. We also have uh, interviews that are happening in letter form. So I'm currently interviewing Buster Benson and also Thomas Chatterton Williams. And if you would like to write on letter and you don't have a correspondent, then you can either write to our letter in a bottle feature or get in touch with me or with any of the letter team and I will put the I will put our email in the show notes. It's humans at karma.wiki and we will find a pen pal for you. We have a matchmaking a e pistolary matchmaking service. And you can also find um Colin, you have a letter there, right? With Cody, an exchange with Cody Moser. I do. And I feel bad that I've been waiting so long to respond to him. (laughs) (laughs) So Cody and Colin are also having a a little bit of a discussion about um, biological sex on letter. And I will link to that below. And 
Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.